You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. The Friday Stand-In, your number one news and talk station. Hi, welcome back. I'm Karima Brown. I'm the Friday Stand-In for the Didi Slabi Show. Now we're coming to the best part of my uh, program and listening experience on uh, Friday, The Naked Scientist with Chris. Chris, before you um, uh, do your thing, I just want to tell you that my bestie, Amy Musgrave, is an absolute fan, and I promised her that I was going to do a shout-out and and tell her that she absolutely loves what you do. Oh, hi, Amy. I'm delighted <laughs> to hear that, and hi, Kareem, nice to make your acquaintance. Okay, I understand Australian scientists have uncovered evidence of the earliest life on Earth. What is this all about? Yes, there's a paper that's come out in the journal Nature this week, and this group of researchers, they're from the University of Wollongong, which is on the far east coast of Australia in New South Wales. Uh, This is Alan Nutman and his colleagues. They were looking at rocks from Greenland, the southwest of Greenland, where Owing to the retreat of ice and snow, some rock formations have been revealed, and what they have found are what we call stromatolites. Now, you can find stromatolites in South Africa as well, very big ones, in fact, out near Joburg, and the similar structures are are to be found in Western Australia. These stromatolites are mushroom or dome-shaped bodies which build up because microorganisms grow and over millions of years they slowly build up these layers and layers of rock and material. Now, when you date how old these things are, the ones in Western Australia date to about 3,500 million years ago. And everyone thought they were the oldest evidence of life on Earth. But what these Australian scientists working in Greenland have found are specimens which are nearly 3,800 million years old. Wow. And so that's, that's obviously a lot older than the previously defined specimens. And what it tells us is that there was complicated, specialised life thriving very, very quickly after the planet formed. We know the Earth is about four and a half billion years old. So in under a billion years, there was already complex, fairly specialised life around on Earth. And this tells us a range of things because it tells us that um, life got started incredibly quickly and therefore um, the planet would have begun to change and must have been hospitable to life getting started relatively quickly. But that probably also tells us that um, well, the likelihood of these same processes being able to occur on other planets is probably higher too because as we begin to understand more about the date and how long it took for this to happen, it, it slowly constrains the likelihood that this is happening elsewhere in the universe. And so probably the likelihood of the same chemistry and the same environments that spawned life here occurring elsewhere are correspondingly higher. This is absolutely fascinating. Of course, you know, the discussion around the origins of life, um, exactly how old the planet is, um, where life originated, is a fascinating discussion, particularly for us here in South Africa. I remember very recently um, the finding of of the Dinaledi, um, you know, um, life forms in the caves here in, in, in South Africa, um, reconfigured and, and challenged the notions of, of, of the origins of life. Tell me, um, the scientists involved in making this discovery, um, which institution um, are they at and, and how did they come across this amazing uh, rock mound formations? Well, they're from the University of Wollongong. And the the thing about this is that scientists have always got their eyes open 
and you're only a good scientist if you're looking and you and you look in places that people would least expect to see things because that's where you find new things usually and uh, you know where you've got areas where there is the retreat of permafrost or the retreat of snow and ice revealing things it's things that no human pair of eyes will have ever looked upon because you know we've been in an ice age until 10,000 years ago and that the most of the the rocks that are in these icy areas are completely buried for forever yeah and so now we're beginning getting to gain access to some of these areas for the first time in in human existence modern anatomically modern human existence and that means that people can begin to spot these things and someone spotted that uh, you've they've got this rock formation and in the sort of profile because the rocks have moved around a bit and they've also been chopped in half um through natural geological processes you can see these dome or cone-shaped objects written into the sedimentary timeline they're about four centimeters across and they bear a striking resemblance to what you can see in western australia and when the, you do other analysis, you can see that they are laminated. They are built up in layers. And uh, this is the uh, stromatolite equivalent of tree rings. Every time a tree grows a year, it adds a layer. That's what the stromatolites sort of do. They've got the same feature. And chemically, when you do isotope analysis, it, it shows that it probably at, at the time these things were growing was a shallow, warm, marine environment, which is just what was happening in Western Australia at the same time where their stromatolites form. What a fascinating, fascinating discussion. And, of course, we welcome uh, questions to Chris. Please call us on 011-8830702. If you're in Cape Town, please do call us on 021-4460567. We've got Tanya on the line, and she's got some really interesting questions that she wants to ask you, Chris. Tanya, go for it. Hi, Chris. It's Tanya speaking from Cape Town. Um, just a, a simple question. My little five-year-old, uh, Ryan, when we drive to school every morning, asks me, why are birds sitting on the electrical wires? And it's a question that I actually don't know how to answer. And this morning I actually said to him, well, we need to ask the naked scientist. So there you go. Oh, well, thank you. When you say, why are they sitting on the wires, do you mean why are they sitting on the wires and they're not dead? Or do you mean just why are they wanting to sit on the wires? Yes, why are they sitting on the wires and not dead? Because they're electrical wires, exactly. Indeed, okay. Well, the thing about electricity is that electricity flows from in the same way that, that water flows from the top of a hill to the bottom of a hill or it flows from an area of high pressure to an area of low pressure, electricity is no different. You need a difference in potential for electricity to flow. And by potential we mean a high voltage to a low voltage. So a battery has a plus end and a minus end and the electricity wants to get from the area of high potential to the area of low potential at the other end of the battery. It's like a pump. When the bird sits on the wire, assuming the wire isn't coated or insulated, which many of these wires aren't, then the bird would be putting itself at the same potential, the same voltage as the wire. But the bird isn't touching anything else, and therefore the bird is not providing a route for the electricity to an area of lower potential. If the bird were to sit on one wire with one leg and touch the negative wire or earth with the other leg, then it would be providing an opportunity for the electricity to go from the high voltage to a low voltage and the current would flow through the bird. But because the bird's sitting on the wire, its two legs are together and that bit of the wire is all at the same potential, there is no potential difference through the body of the bird, so the bird does not experience a flow of electricity and is not in any way harmed. And you could do the same thing if you hung on a wire by your arms and you didn't touch anything else, 
you would be absolutely fine. All right, Chris, there are so many questions that I have for you. Of course, we have to make space for the listeners as well. One of the things that fascinates me was the fact that you were saying so much of what this um, reveals has been um, unavailable to us um, and that they um, are incredibly difficult to get at. How was it um, possible for the scientists to find these minds that are generally not, um, you know, available? Did they, were they part of an existing project? Um, did someone alert them? Um, just explain to us how they came across this, considering that it's so difficult to access. Well, I, I haven't spoken to this group of scientists, so I don't know exactly how they got into that particular area. But there are hotspots that scientists and the scientific community know about, which are good to look at. Yeah. And in the same way you brought up the subject of Homo naledi earlier, mm-hmm. uh, the reason these things come to light is because scientists intuit what, the, what might be out there and they have an idea what where it's worth looking and what it's worth looking for. And if you add to that a healthy dose of serendipity, luck, <laughs> yes. then uh, you bring the two things together and out of that pops really great discoveries, which is exactly actually what happened with, with the uh, Naledi fossils. Because if you ask Lee Berger, he will tell you yeah. that um, actually whilst uh, th- those things have been there for a while, um, and many people have been into that cave system before, they hadn't taken the route that the two individuals who made the initial discovery did take because people had overlooked it and that's the important thing about science it's, it's that you have to keep your eyes open because you, you, you can often stumble on things that other people have dismissed Fantastic, Tandy from Joburg has a question for you Chris Morning Chris Hello Morning, Hello Tandy, Chris. go ahead Yeah, I've got a question so when, when, you, when somebody gets given antibiotics they always ask to take probiotics with that in order to re-establish the microbacterial flora in the in the in the stomach. Now, one of the side effects, obviously, of taking antibiotic is vaginal trash. And I want to know how do the bacteria in the probiotic get to affect the bacterial flora in the in the vagina versus how they would work in the stomach? Because that one is more direct. You take them orally, and you can see the effect of that. But how does it affect? or prevent vaginal trash. Yeah, hello, Tandy. Um, And this is a a very important question because when we take antibiotics, the antibiotics do not discriminate between the bacteria that are causing your infection and are bad bacteria and the bacteria which you have evolved to live healthily and happily alongside and which actually keep you healthy. And unfortunately there will be casualties in the same way that during a war there were innocent bystanders who sometimes get taken down in the crossfire. When someone takes an antibiotic drug, it will take down your healthy bacteria too. It will disturb the natural equilibrium of the ratio of different species or types of bacteria and the different amounts of those bacteria and other microorganisms. And that disturbance then leads to an overgrowth or an intrusion or invasion by other microbes often transiently. Now, what happens in the case of upsetting your intestines, when you take an antibiotic molecule, you throw the normal population of good and healthy bacteria into disarray. You do wipe out the bad guys elsewhere in your body, but it does leave you with this period when everything's upset. Probiotics can help to replace some of the bacteria that have been lost. They also help to, by feeding the right sorts of bacteria, restore the equilibrium to what it should be. 
Now, in other parts of the body, they have a self-resetting mechanism. And in the case of the vagina, what happens there is that normally the cells that line that part of the body produce acid and they also produce chemicals that encourage certain bacteria to thrive and those bacteria themselves produce acid, lactic acid. They're called dodolines lactogenic bacilli. Those are the bacteria that are there naturally. And the, the presence of the acid then suppresses the growth of things like thrush. But if you disturb those bacteria for a while, that's thrown off kilter. When you stop taking the antibiotics, then it enables the normal uh, processes that would grow there to come back, and this restores the chemistry, and that in turn suppresses the other nasties that were there. So the probiotics work in the area you tend to put them. They're less likely to access other bits of your body unless you put them there, but naturally just stopping the antibiotics helps to restore the balance. Some people, though, do apply certain things like yogurt to certain parts of their body because they've got these um, bacteria in them anyway, and this, they say, can help, but it's more likely to just soothe the area while it's a bit sore because the kinds of bacteria you use in yoghurt, although they're related, they're not exactly the same as the ones you'd find in that part of your body, uh, and so that's probably not the mechanism. Sibusisa in Joburg, you've got a question for Chris. Hello, hello, Chris, and hello, Karima. My question to you, Chris, is about uh, during a hot day, you usually have a nosebleed. I want to know what causes that nosebleed and, yeah. Okay, well, the the reason you have nosebleeds, um, often parents will bring little children to the doctor and say, my child keeps having regular nosebleeds. And the first thing that an astute doctor does is that they pick up the child's hands and they look at their index fingers because the commonest cause of a nosebleed is trauma. And it's often trauma from an index finger inserted into a nostril to dig out things. And in the course of doing that, you scrape or scratch the inside lining of your nose. The reason the nose is, ha- is so likely to bleed is because the nasal lining is very richly supplied with blood. And the reason for that is that the blood warms the air that flows in through your nose, which means that you get less of a shock when you take that air deep inside your body because it's pre-warmed. It's also pre-dampened because the blood is used to make mucus and moisture inside the nose, and this humidifies the air you're breathing in, again, to make it more in keeping with the makeup of air that you find deep inside your body. But the presence of those rich networks of blood vessels lining the nose means that it's very easy to traumatize them either with a finger or by bashing your nose there are some other situations where people develop conditions that make them more prone to nosebleeds and people who have bleeding disorders or they don't have enough platelets or other constituents in the blood that stop their nose um, stop their blood from clotting they can be more prone to nosebleeds and there are also some other conditions including parasitic infections and uh, and some for instance tumors or cancers or certain drug use like cocaine can also cause um, people to get nosebleeds because the cocaine causes initially the blood vessels to constrict and this can cause tissue up the nose to die because it's starved of blood supply but when when the drug is taken away the blood vessels open up again and the blood flows into all this broken down tissue and and then they get nosebleeds chris i hope my sister and my aunt was listening were listening because they suffer from nosebleeds and um, i found the explanations quite fascinating let's go to nsiki in the cbd in joburg she's got a question for you Uh, hello sir I want to check him if there was any possible cure for retinal pigmentos or. Sorry, Hello. I didn't catch the question. What's the I, question I'm again? You, if there were, is there any possible for in the nearest future for retinal pig- eye problem called retinal pigmentosa? 
Okay, Chris. Karima, I didn't understand that. What's yeah, the question? The question is basically, is there a cure for retinal pigmentosa? That is the yes. question. Yes. Right, so retinitis pigmentosa is an inherited condition. And when someone has this disease, the layer at the back of the eye, the retinal pigment epithelium, which nourishes the photoreceptors, the rods and cones that convert photons of light that you're looking at into nerve signals that your brain can decode. When that retinal pigment epithelial layer is disturbed or disrupted, it stops its nourishing and cleansing role at the back of the eye, and this leads to the accumulation of nasties, which can lead to the direct poisoning or damage to the photoreceptors and the other sensitive cells that make up the seeing bit of the retina. Now, up until now, this has been a common cause, relatively speaking, of blindness, but researchers are now beginning to come up with ways to replace the function of the retinal pigment epithelium. And I was speaking to a gentleman called Lyndon de Cruz, who is an Australian researcher, but he's currently working in London. And he was at a conference in May that I was at. He works at Moorfield Eye Hospital in London. And he was demonstrating in his presentation that he's made a repair patch for the back of the eye and a little device to slot it in. And he can grow new retinal pigment epithelial cells on his repair patch and then slot these into the back of the eye underneath the retina and they restore vision to people who have problems like macular degeneration and some of these retinal pigment epithelial disorders. So I would say that at the moment this is not currently the kind of thing you can go into a doctor's surgery and get right now but this shows you that scientists are getting very close to being able to repair these sorts of disorders. Thank God for scientists we're going to Nina Nine Craigle. Nina? Hi. Uh, you know, my question is really about this thing of um, defining our area as an Anthropocene era because of the degree of um, lethal particles in the environment. And I'm not interested in whether there is any solution other than sort of grand war or, and in fact happens in terms of things like asthma, and multiple chemical sensitivities, allergies. Are there new solutions to these problems? Do you know, I went to see uh, Lord Rees, Martin Rees, who's the Astronomer Royal and uh, was president of the Royal Society. He lives in Cambridge. I was at his house two days ago and we were discussing this because he's written a piece all about the Anthropocene, which is the idea of creating a, a new geological epoch, which is defined by the existence of modern humans. And the idea is that uh, if you were an alien gazing in on planet Earth in millions of years' time, you could come along and drill a hole into the Earth and you would find this layer in the geological timeline corresponding to the hundreds of years that, that modern humans have been around. The giveaway would be that there would be loads of plastic in there, which had never existed in nature before. There would be lots and lots of bones of domesticated animals because for the first time in Earth's history there were more domestic animals than there are wild animals. You would also find unnatural isotopes like plutonium caused by bomb tests and also nuclear weapons. And so this would be a defining epoch in the existence in the four and a half billion years or so the Earth has been around. Now, 
the thing that I put to Martin Rees was I said, well, from here on in, we, we know that we are where we are. We can go in one of two directions. We can get better or we can get worse. And the thing is that there are more humans around now than there have ever been. There are 7.2 billion people on Earth. We're consuming resources at the rate of probably two planet Earths every year, not one. And if we keep going business as usual, churning out carbon dioxide, polluting the environment putting these materials like plastics into the environment, into the ocean, and we don't worry about what we are doing to the planet we live on because we are pushing out all of the natural biodiversity, the plants and animals that share the planet with us, then we will have a very unhappy future. If, on the other hand, we do develop uh, a consciousness that's more acute than it is at the moment and, and worry about these problems and quickly develop solutions to them and we get control of the human population, then we do stand a chance that our our, you know, our future descendants will enjoy a very nice existence both on this planet and, as Martin speculated, off this planet because he thinks most of the exciting things to come will be out in space, not stuck here on Earth. Uh, that segues really nicely into the question that Sabia from Pretoria wants to ask you. Sabia, go for it. Hi, uh, I've got two kids who are both asthmatic. Uh, they react to dust and grass, which is everywhere. What I need to know is what can I do or use to strengthen the immune system or resistance to that? Well, first of all, what is asthma? Well, asthma is an allergy. And when a person has asthma, they have made antibodies called IgE antibodies, which recognize things that they breathe in which the majority of people who don't have asthma recognize as completely innocuous, harmless, for some reason in people who have asthma, and maybe one person in 20 to one person in 10 has asthma now, in those individuals, then the lung cells that express these IgE antibodies recognize these chemicals they're breathing in, and it triggers an inflammatory reaction. And this causes the airways to narrow because muscles in them contract, and this adds resistance to air, which makes uh, breathing more difficult. It also increases the secretion and production of mucus into the airways, uh, ostensibly there, to soak up the nasties that the lung is reacting to. But this has the effect of blocking the airway, making it harder for them to breathe, and you also get uh, swelling in the airways because blood flow increases. And all of these factors uh, contribute to what we call an asthma attack, which can be life-threatening. And it's also becoming more common. Now, we don't know why more and more people are becoming prone to more and more allergies more and more of the time. One theory is what we call the hygiene hypothesis. And this is that people are growing up in a world which is so overwhelmed by sterility that we are not catching and becoming colonised by the right combinations of microorganisms at a young age, which educates our immune system, what it can regard as a friend and what it should regard as a foe. And the consequence of that is that you are more prone to developing allergic conditions. That's one theory. There may be other explanations which we're not aware of yet. It may also be that we live in an environment where there are more things around and more infections around because there are more of us and this increase, increases a person's susceptibility to developing these conditions. At the moment, all we can offer is symptomatic control and that means uh, taking chemicals like bronchodilator drugs that open up the airways and reduce the severity of the attacks. You can take steroid drugs, inhaled steroids that damp down the immune response in the lung and this makes it uh, more likely that you will not have one of those attacks on a day-to-day -day basis. You can also stay away from the thing that seems to trigger the attacks 
and, uh, and ideally in the future, we'll try and find out how to reprogram the immune system so that people don't react like that in the first place. But at the moment, we just don't know why this is happening, and, uh, and, and it's an active research question. Well, that wraps up the Naked Scientist. Chris, thank you so much. Callers, interesting questions that you've been asking. Um, and, of course, the Naked Scientist breaking it down, making science real, applicable in real life. Um, and, of course, giving us solutions and telling us that there's a lot that science still doesn't, um, you know, know about. And I think that that is why we are constantly searching and researching uh, causes and looking at ways in which science can actually improve our lives on this earth and, and, and make us come to terms with our environment. Well, coming up in the next half hour, we are going to be talking uh, some of the big questions that are facing us in the country at the moment. I'm going to be joined by Sipo Pitiana, who has uh, been a former DG. Um, everybody um, that listens to the radio and that's interested in the news have heard his um, incredible speech at the funeral of Reverend Stofile um, that has been described by some people as a cathartic moment um, that the death of that funeral was in fact the beginning of the renewal of the African National Congress. We're going to be talking about um, what his views are of this organization, of course the country, and we, be, we will be speaking to the former constitutional court judge, uh, Johan Krichler, about why he has become involved um, in the case that involves the um, individuals that um, the Hawks has asked to present themselves to um, answer questions around the so-called SARS unit.